This episode of The Overlook is presented by Sunlight Tax, financial advice and tax planning tailored for creatives. Learn more at sunlighttax.com. Asheville police have been public about their challenges recruiting and keeping officers. The Asheville Police Department is still struggling with a staffing shortage at a time when recruiting new officers is difficult. The officer shortages are changing the crimes police can respond to and how they interact with the community. News 13's Andrew James tells us about... I'm Matt Pikin. My guest today on The Overlook is Daniel Walton. He has covered the travails of the Asheville police as a reporter and city editor with Mountain Express. He left the Express staff just a few weeks ago, but is still a contributing journalist. There's a reason that we got reported on by the New York Times, I believe it was last year, specifically regarding police retention and recruitment. Asheville has a particular problem. Daniel Walton and I talk about the department's checkered history both on the streets and within its ranks. Walton also details some of the factors keeping Asheville from making more headway and the department enlisting outside help to do so. We'll get to my conversation in just a moment, but I first want to introduce you to Hannah Cole. She's an Asheville artist who makes beautiful paintings. She's also an accountant who started Sunlight Tax in large part to help creatives like her. We're approaching tax time, and Hannah says a lot of freelancers miss out on a potentially big deduction, mileage. You have one car and you use that for personal stuff, like buying your groceries, but you also are gonna, with that, like come and meet with somebody you're gonna interview, and that would be a business trip. So that mileage is deductible, whereas the grocery store is not. Hannah, do you have a simple trick for how people can keep track of mileage that is deductible versus mileage that isn't? It's such a dumb answer, but yeah, get an app. Hannah produces a lot of videos, a podcast, a blog, a visual guide to deductions, all free of charges, community financial resources. She also has a more comprehensive money boot camp. Find out more about all of it at sunlighttax.com. I began my conversation with Daniel Walton, asking if there were any particular events in Asheville before the protests around George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement that caught his attention as a journalist to the city's police department. For Asheville in particular, before George Floyd, you get the whole Johnny Rush saga, the incident in which a white police officer, Christopher Hickman, beat Johnny Rush, a black pedestrian. He was crossing the town across Biltmore Avenue, pretty much right next to right across from McCormick Field. The release of body cam footage from that led to a big black eye for the department. A lot of concern, frustration over the police and how they treat particularly the black community eventually led or set off a chain of events that led to the resignation of the city manager, eventually the resignation of the then police chief, Tammy Hooper. So the police really entered the conversation and the police's interactions with minorities entered the conversation for me around then, which I believe was 2018. Was the police department having a particular issue with retaining officers from your vantage point? Was morale an issue at that time? The retention issue certainly was less prevalent then than it is now. But it's important to note that the APD has had a retention issue for quite some time. As Chief Zach pointed out, 
this earlier this month, they have, since 2005, the city's hired 507 officers, they've lost 367. That means that over the past decade and a half, they've just been grinding forward and grinding through their workforce, even as the city has grown substantially. Is that something comparable cities are also having issues with? Or is Asheville an outlier in terms of that kind of attrition and retention issue? Certainly, cities across the country are having problems keeping their police. And cities across the country, like Asheville, are raising police pay, are embarking on new recruiting campaigns. But Asheville is higher than many of these other cities in terms of attrition rates. Chief Sachs said that Asheville is among the top three cities in the country per capita for attrition of police officers. There's a reason that we got reported on by the New York Times, I believe it was last year, specifically regarding police retention and recruitment. Asheville has a particular problem. Why do you think that is? Is Chief Zach pointing out reasons? And if so, do you see that what he is saying is, oh, that rings thorough and true, or is there more to it? There are, as with so many things, a combination of factors playing into this. Number one, pay for officers, while it has been increasing, is still lower than you could make, say, in a Raleigh or a Charlotte or in metro areas outside of North Carolina. Concurrently, Asheville has the highest cost of living of all cities in the state. So if you're a young guy coming out of college or high school thinking, I want to be a cop, let's look at Asheville. What you're going to make here and how, what standard of living that's going to let you have here is going to be a bit of a turnoff compared to what you could do in other cities. Second, Asheville has a very vocal police skeptic community, we'll call it that. Zach may have been playing this up a lot, but it is true that the public discourse in Asheville tends to be more on the side of police skepticism. We could use fewer cops or need them to do things differently rather than back the blue, let's support them, etc. On top of all of this, the police here now are having to interact more with a different type of criminal or offender. We're seeing increasing homelessness, particularly unsheltered homelessness here. We're seeing increasing opioid addictions. We're seeing increasing drug dealing activity. These are, I could imagine if you're a young cop and you're having to deal with this on your beat regularly, it's a harder environment to jump into than it would be in some other cities. You've touched on a few things that I want to drill into specifically and individually, but let's back up a second. The Johnny Rush episode certainly was a black eye, to say the least, on the police department here. You said going back 10 years, they have statistics that have shown that the city is losing almost as many police as they are bringing in onto the force. What has changed or has anything changed just in the past three to four years? Is there any difference now than there was even coming out of the Johnny Rush incident? I think the national dialogue has really changed. And as with so many issues politically in this country, what may have been a local conversation four or five years ago is now a national conversation, is inflamed by national trends and national events and national talking points and national talking heads. So the strains of police criticism, police skepticism that were here 
in 2018 or before have just gotten amplified and recontextualized after 2020, after George Floyd, after the protests. We see when you look at some of the attrition numbers that in 2020, you had 58 officers leave the city. In 2019, you had 22 leave. In 2021, you had 38 leave. Of those numbers, how big is the force now, today? The number that really matters is how many officers are on the ground on a daily basis. And that number, as of January 6th, was around 146 officers. That's about 40% down from the sworn strength of the force. That's 238 officers. That's how many cops our city theoretically has funding for, has budgeted for. Those are people that we cannot get into the door. So we're down 40% on what they've budgeted for. You touched on relatively low pay. You touched on the rising homelessness issue and the opioid issue. And I want to talk about each of those things. Why can't this city pay its officers more? What's going on? The city has been trying to pay its officers more, and they have boosted it pretty substantially, at least compared to many other sectors. In June of 2021, council raised starting officer pay by about 20%. So starting officer now makes over $45,000 a year. If you are someone with a little bit of experience who has some advanced certification, the average officer is going to be making close to $54,000 a year, which is not terrible money. And it is over the living wage, if you do the math, just on an hourly basis. It's not fantastic money. That itself is a whole other topic where 54000 is seen as like above average pay. Are officers in other cities making more money, comparable cities? So I don't have the comps directly available right now. I know that pay can be higher in some of the metro areas. We're more comparable now than we were even three years ago. But the raw pay isn't even as much of an issue as just cost of living. Like your $54,000 does not go as far here as it would in a Raleigh or a Charlotte. One of the things that I saw developing over the past year or two were other cities trying to market to Asheville police officers, leave Asheville, come work for our city. We offer a better political landscape. We offer better pay or just better conditions. Is that true that was going on? That's absolutely true. We reported on that a while back. There was a billboard, I forget exactly which city it was, but I think it was one of the coastal cities in North Carolina had posted a billboard, hey, if you're a cop, come work for us. It's unclear exactly how many people left our force to go to other cities. Anecdotally, I know that a number of cops have left the APD to work in just surrounding areas, the Hendersonville Police Department, Woodfin or Weaverville. So we are seeing attrition to other departments. Chief Zach has lamented that poaching is legal in North Carolina for officers. He says that's not the case in New York State, but it's a reality that our department has to contend with. To be fair, we're also trying to poach. The recruitment effort that we are now funding, we have a consultant, Epic Recruiting. We're paying them $225,000 a couple of years to bring up the recruitment. They are casting a wide net, primarily for online advertising. Some of the biggest cities that they've gotten responses from are Nashville and Atlanta. So we're trying to get people from outside of the area. We're not always recruiting indigenously to, to Western North Carolina. Do you have any sense of whether those campaigns are actually paying off? Have you, or, is, or are they too new to have had data been born from those campaigns? 
So I asked that question of Chief Zach, and he said it's really too early. That when I talked to him in early January, he said that he'd just gotten the first report from Epic's recruiting campaign. They're certainly getting a good deal of clicks, <laughs> certainly a good deal of page views. As anyone who works in media knows, those numbers mean comparatively little compared to how many people actually fill out an application and go to the next stage of the process. And I think it's a little too early to say just how successful that's been. You talked about homelessness, and I know that is perhaps the most maybe rivaling opioid addiction, perhaps rivaling each other as the top concern for law enforcement here. I'm just wondering, what are you hearing about how homelessness is affecting law enforcement on the ground day to day? I think the biggest issue for police dealing with homelessness is just that there's no win in any way they choose to deal with the issue. If they as they have done, sweep camps away, call in bulldozers to take away people's tents, they get reamed in the press. If they take a more hands-off approach and let people camp on business property, they get reamed by the business owners. There's really no solution that for a street-level cop can appease all of these different constituencies. And meanwhile, we see that unsheltered homelessness increased 50% from 2021 through 2022. We're going to have more detailed numbers on what it looks like this year in spring, but the, those are the latest data that we have, and it shows a really significant increase. You absolutely don't want to thumb through the U.S. tax code to sort through all your potential deductions. You're in luck because Asheville artist and accountant Hannah Cole of Sunlight Tax has done that for you with a free guide to deductions for creative entrepreneurs. A lot of people, especially in the creative world, we don't tend to use very commercial language for what we do. What I wanted to create was a visual guide that has one column, which is how you think of it what you call the thing you're doing, whether it's sending DMs on Instagram or your website, and then connect it to what the IRS calls that. And so it's very clear, the thing you call this, the IRS calls this. Your guide is very visual, Hannah, so how do people put it to use? It has the actual tax rules. And that's important because they're not all entirely the same and they're very much not all intuitive. So for example, how do I deduct my home office or my home studio? It's actually not hard to do, but if you don't know the rules, you might not be doing it the way you should be. Hannah's Guide to Deductions is free to download at sunlighttax.com slash deductionsguide. I began the second half of my conversation with Daniel Walton asking about an entrenched rumor that other cities routinely bust their homeless people into Asheville. By the way, that topic will be covered more extensively next week in a conversation I later had with Sarah Hanoski of the Citizen Times. So we know that such busing programs exist. We know, I believe The Guardian did an investigation a couple years back that showed that Yes, the homeless people are bused from city to city. As to whether that is happening from other cities to Asheville, it's not entirely clear. I will say that I know that there's been some confusion over the Greyhound bus <laughs> that comes into Asheville. It's now dropping off at a fairly sketchy looking gas station, not an official station. And I think there's been some people who have seen the Greyhound bus roll in, drop off its passengers, and they're like, oh, this is just a bunch of homeless coming in when it may or just be people trying to get from point A to point B without a car. 
You mentioned how the police have their hands tied. They're damned if they do, damned if they don't regarding the homeless. Is that also the case with opioid addiction? You talked concrete numbers on how homelessness is increasing here. Do we have concrete numbers in terms of how opioid addiction is sending people into the hands of law enforcement or into our medical community? I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I know that as a general trend, opioid overdoses have continued to increase, even as we pull in a whole bunch of money to try and fight the problem. I'll say that in general, the county and city have been trying to debut some innovative programs to avoid making it entirely the cops' problem. There's now a community overdose response team, which is managed out of kind of Buncombe County EMS, where you've got paramedics, social workers who will come to somebody who has just had an overdose, get them the help they need, try to not make it a legal issue and make it a real turning point for them. Daniel, you just touched on something that I know has also been a talk in how to handle things on a law enforcement level, that maybe police aren't the people to call in with the homeless. Maybe we need social service workers. We need a combination of skill sets. Is that also being done here in Asheville in working in concert with the police? It's being explored. A model that's been thrown around is something called the CAHOOTS model, which I believe was piloted in Eugene, Oregon, where you've got more of this kind of social work, medical teamwork approach rather than simply sending police to deal with a problem such as homelessness. I know that the city is actively investigating these kind of models. So far, they've yet to really get off the ground in any appreciable way. Why do you think that is? Why is Asheville struggling here? You touched on a little while ago how our progressive politics, in some ways, at least from a police vantage, hurt their ability to crack down on certain things, because if they do, our progressive community gets down on them. But yet, these progressive approaches to law enforcement, you're saying, also are slow in getting off the ground. What are some of the hurdles that are happening here? I think it speaks to a broader issue in city government, which is that city government is trying to pursue a lot of things all at once while dealing with its own staffing challenges. You've got the reparations commission going on and floundering, honestly, after being off to a delayed start. You've got the city attempting to deal with climate change. You've got an action plan that has been months delayed on that. You've got the city trying to deal with affordable housing. You've got so many balls up in the air for the city. Although this kind of reimagining public safety, as city manager Deborah Campbell likes to call it, is one of those balls, it is just one. So I think while the city's intent may be to reinvent these programs, to bring some more progressive approaches in, it is difficult for them to move any individual program forward. They're trying to do a lot at one time. I know there was some talk, I don't know, about a year ago, maybe you could put a more precise timeline on it, where the police were having to make decisions because of our reduced staffing that we can't pursue certain crimes, certain calls for help. Is there any quantifiable line on the kinds of crimes or calls for help that maybe previously were being responded to, but now that we have a reduced staff by 40% aren't being responded to or are much slower to respond? So the announcement was, I believe, June of 2021, where the police said, for certain types of crimes, mostly 
fairly low-level property stuff, things like theft of less than $1,000 where there's no immediately identifiable suspect, like car break-ins where there's no immediately identifiable subject, the, those kind of crimes. They still want you to report them, but they won't send an officer out to take a statement. It's hard to tell exactly what the impact of that has been, but we do know that property crime rates in Asheville are substantially higher than they are in other North Carolina cities. We know that in 2020, reporting to the FBI, Asheville had a property crime rate of 5,395 crimes per 100,000 people. The average rate for the 20 largest North Carolina cities was 2,788 crimes per capita. That's double the crimes per capita. It's pretty darn close. So we see that Asheville has a real problem with property crime compared to other North Carolina cities. We also know that even given these changes where the police are spending less time sending people out to take these statements, we also know that response times for more important crimes haven't really improved all that much and in some cases have actually worsened. One of our contributors, Mark Barrett, did a story about that last year, finding that categories of crimes hit and run or things that they will actually come out and respond to, like, they're still taking more time to get to. And that's probably just an issue of staffing overall that hasn't been counterbalanced with this reduction of work on less important crimes. How much of that is the real necessity of having to cut back because we are now down 40% of the officers that are budgeted for, and how much of it is making a political position, like making a political statement? If we're not gonna back the police, this is the cost of not backing the police. How much of this is reality? How much of this is playing politics? I honestly don't feel qualified to, to make that statement. I'll tell you that the police certainly have, in the past couple of years, been a lot more conscious about their public relations. They have hired a firm called Colpro Media to guide a lot of their PR work, a lot of their social media work. They have been, from, from my point of view as somebody who gets all the press releases, they have been a lot more active in the past couple of years of sending out press releases whenever they catch somebody with a gun or with drugs. And they've been a lot more in sending press releases of, quote, scary crimes, stuff like this guy broke into somebody's house while she was still there, or this person did a carjacking right off Mission Hospital's campus. I think there certainly has been an effort to show the public this city is actually dangerous and you need us. No, we're a couple of years out of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement, at least in terms of active protests, have calmed. What do you get the sense of the public's perception of Asheville police at this point? Do you think the public is understanding, hey, we're just, we don't have enough officers, or is, do people care what the excuses are? I'll say that over the past year or so, we have seen the emergence of more support for police. We're seeing new community groups like the Asheville Coalition for Public Safety, this East Asheville for Safety and Truth Facebook group that have emerged with a perspective of, we need the police, we want to give them the resources that they need to do their jobs. We're seeing that public safety has become an issue for local elections. We saw that in the 2022 council elections where a slate of Republican and unaffiliated candidates ran as your team Asheville, primarily emphasizing this public safety back the police message. 
none of them made it out of the primaries, but whether that's due to their message or because they were Republican and unaffiliated in an essentially democratic town, you know, that's, you can't really draw the causation there. And we're certainly seeing the narrative in public a shift to a little more support for the police. Do you think that's because even people who would call themselves progressives are saying, look, I, we see out on the streets every day, whether it's the homeless or the mental illness, the opioid addiction is certainly more visible on our streets. Do you think that there's a progressive turn now to be, if not more sympathetic to the police at large, just understanding we have a problem here? I do. I also think there's a there's another side of the community that, that we need to take into account here, and that's the black community themselves, who many black community leaders have been increasingly vocal about raising the point, we don't want to defund the police, we want more policing in our communities done better. I, we recently did an article that, that talked about gun crime. We had David Nash, the executive director of the Asheville Housing Authority, tell us that the APD used to have a team that worked exclusively in public housing communities to make relationships, try to solve crimes. That team no longer exists. We have Antoinette Mosley, one of our city council members, just at the council meeting this Tuesday, give her support for the Asheville Police Department gaining access to a camera network operated by the Buncombe County Sheriff's Office. A lot of cameras that are in public housing she specifically said, after some thoughts were raised, we need some more discussion about this. Well, I hope nobody gets shot in Hillcrest before we get our act together on, on this camera system. So I'd say that the conversation, particularly in the black community, has become a little more strident about we need, we need policing resources now. So where does that leave things right now? You've talked about there's been a turn in terms of willingness to help, even from constituents who might have been adversarial to the police a few years ago and now see more of a need. You're talking about the rising homelessness, opioid addiction, and we didn't even talk about the effects of mental illness on the streets. Where are these points going to collide in a way that something will be done? Or do you think that things are going to get worse before they get better? Frankly, it's hard to say how much worse can it get. This 40% reduction level has been pretty stable over the past year. It's hard for me to see it getting too much worse in terms of just feet on the street right now. I think no matter what happens, no matter how much money we pump into recruiting and hiring, it will take at least a little bit to bring numbers back up. Chief Zach has said it takes 14 months from the time you get somebody through the door applying to be an officer to the point where they can patrol the streets alone. So no matter what, we're still gonna have over a year of these really low staffing levels. I didn't really get a chance to touch on this, but Asheville's police department has had a lot of turnover at leadership over the past decade. We saw that the police chief before Tammy Hooper, who I mentioned, William Anderson, left in 2014. Per Citizen Times reporting at the time, it was due to, quote, an internal revolt in an ill-fated attempt to make himself a part of the investigation into a single car crash involving his son. So we had that happen. We had the chief before him, Bill Hogan, leave in 2000 after concerns over handling of evidence in the police's evidence room. We had the chief that was hired after Tammy Hooper, Chris Bailey, resign in 45 days after allegations became or surfaced that he had felony assault charges from his time in Indianapolis. 
So there's been a lot of instability at the job of top cop. And if you are someone who is looking for a stable department in which you have a clear vision for how policing will be in the city, that history may give you pause. Even if we did have money to solve some of these issues and pay officers better, and what needs to happen in terms of leadership? Is it just more stability? Just having more stability up top would make a big difference? I think that lack of consistent leadership has been a problem for the department. I think rising the staffing levels will help. In terms of operational changes, there have been some efforts made to reduce some of the burden on the police. We've seen that uh, like animal control issues, for example, have been offloaded from the police. A lot of noise ordinance enforcement has been offloaded from the police in recent years. So it's possible that there are other changes that could be made where we are asking our police to do less, but do it better. That might help improve the experience of the public in terms of feeling safer if the police were asked to do less but do it in a more conscious way. I'll tell a story, both true and allegory. Oh, the process is precious, though. It takes up all my time. I want to thank Daniel Walton as my guest and Sunlight Tax as the presenting sponsor for this episode. Our theme song is Maker's Song, provided courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. You can find out more about them at theresonantrogues.com. There are new episodes of The Overlook every Monday through Thursday with a special audio residency happening on Fridays with Story Parlor in West Asheville. Make sure you subscribe or follow for free on your favorite podcasting app and sign up for our newsletter at podavl.com overlook. I'm Matt Pikin and I'll be here with you on the next episode of The Overlook. <laughs>